it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today we have session number eight, and we have myself, Dave Ahern, co-host, and we also have Andrew Sather, co-host, today with you. We're going to be talking a little bit between each other, and it should be a lot of fun. Last week was an awesome show. I hope you guys had a chance to take a look and listen to it. And this week, uh, Andrew and I are going to chat a little bit. So, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Yeah, so, I mean, was it two weeks ago, we kind of took out our weapons and we fired them into the whole industry, the whole financial services industry. Today, I guess we're going to direct it towards some other group of people that will probably piss a lot of people off, (laughs) basically talking about the academic types, the ivory tower. There's a theory called the efficient market hypothesis, uh, really based off a lot of the professors at the University of Chicago. If you... If you pursue an education in relation to investing in the stock market economics, you will get exposed to the efficient market hypothesis. It's something that there's been a lot of studies on, you know, PhD theses, but it's also a really hotly debated topic among, you kind of have the value investor side, the guys who have made billions like Warren Buffett, Seth Klarman, Peter Lynch, Joel Greenblatt, Manish Parai, on and on. Yeah. And so it's kind of like them through their track performance have really proved that the efficient market hypothesis hasn't held true for them. And so there's that camp. And then there's the other camp that says the average investor should not try to beat the market because the markets are efficient. So that's something we kind of want to address and give our own takes on it to see, okay, you know, our audience is a lot of beginners, and if there's academic studies saying that we shouldn't try to beat the market, is that something we should follow, or is that something that maybe we can look further into and see really what are the factors that go into that, and is there a way to mitigate that, and that's what I hope to do with this episode. Excellent. Well, I guess why don't you tell us a little bit about the 
efficient market hypothesis and kind of where it originated and, and who started it and what your thoughts are on it? So it's been around for a while. Most recently, it's been popularized by a guy named Jack Bogle and more recently, an author named Burton McKeel. He wrote a book called A Random Walk Down Wall Street where he brought his own inputs into it and gave some conclusions about why the efficient markets are actually efficient. So the whole premise behind it is that the there's this idea that every stock in the stock market is fairly priced based on the information that's available currently. So, you know, there's all this financial data. These stocks all trade based on how they release earnings, what their balance sheets look like. And so the whole premise of the efficient market hypothesis is that, okay, all this information is freely available. You've got millions, perhaps maybe billions of people who are all sifting through this, a lot of industry professionals, fund managers, individual investors like you and I, they're all dissecting this data. And as the data comes out, investors react. And so, for example, if you get a good earnings report, it will likely push the stock price up. And so the efficient market hypothesis says that all the stocks are fairly, fairly valued. And so they are priced based on information that's available. So there's no way to get an advantage if everybody's already pricing what a company is releasing in their reports. Okay. All right. Well, I guess, you know, from some of the studies that I read about the hypothesis, it, like you said, it basically means that, you know, the prices that you see on a stock, whatever the company may be, all the current factors are factored into that price for that day. So there is no discrepancy on the value of the business, and therefore you can't beat the market. So there's no way to beat the price of the market. I know that some of the gentlemen that you were mentioning, Jack Bogle and Burton Melchiel, they are very smart men, and they're very learned, and they've written some excellent books. They have some great points in the books. And I know you wrote a, an excellent article about Burton Melchiel just recently, uh, about some of your thoughts on that. And I you know, concur with a lot of the thoughts that you came up with it uh, in your article. And one of the things that I guess I wanted to mention about both of those gentlemen is, you know, some of what they say I have to kind of, I'm skeptical because they're advocating passive investing. That's one of the things that the efficient market hypothesis advocates is passive investing. Because you can't meet, beat the market, they recommend that you invest in index funds or ETFs, which are passive, and you know have lower fees, and theoretically you're just matching the market, and that's how you can win, in essence. And... You know, those two gentlemen that, we're, that I was just referring to, they have a very big stake in companies that offer, you know, index funds, ETFs. You know, Jack, Jack uh, Bogle is the is president CEO of Vanguard with the largest, you know, pr fund provider in the world. And, you know, so he has a, a, a very large stake in what he's advocating. I'm not saying that a lot of the things he's saying is wrong, but uh, you know, I think that the efficient market hypothesis, frankly, is a, kind of bunk. And you know, I'll say it out loud. Uh, you know, when you talk about 
guys like Warren Buffett, Monish Prabhai, Seth Carman, Joel Greenblatt, you know, Bill Ackman, you know, there's just all these great value investors that have figured out a way to actually beat the market. I'm going to chat just for a second about something Warren Buffett, he gave a speech in at Columbia School for Business in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of security analysis, the awesome book by Benjamin Graham that we've talked about many times. And later, the speech was so popular that later he created a, a print version of it. It's called The Super Investors of Graham and Doddsville. And if you have not read it, I would urge you to run out and read it. It is an amazing article. He has lots and lots of great Buffettisms in it. And one of the things that he talks a lot about in the book, he, he basically illustrates eight different uh, super investors, value investors that he either has worked with or knows personally that have beaten the market, and I think, an average of 18 to 20% over about a 30-year period. And one of the things that he talks about in this article is he talks about a coin flip. And he talks about the t statistics of that. And he says, you know, if you take every single person in the United States and you do a coin flip, eventually you're going to get down to a very few winners. He argues that you can take the same coin flip and do it with orangutans, and you're going to get roughly the same result. But his point in this whole coin flip is that if you come out with, so let's say, 40 orangutans that are doing much better than the rest of the other orangutans, and they're all coming from a zoo in Omaha, then you're going to be like curious, why, why are these guys doing so great? What, what's their secret? You're going to start analyzing this and discovering, you know, trying to figure out how they're beating the rest of the other orangutans that are flipping the coin. And, you know, he calls it an intellectual exercise, you know, and that's where he kind of comes up with this Graham and Doddsville because, you know, he's basically taking all the gentlemen that have either you know, been influenced by the works of, you know, Benjamin Graham and David Dodd and kind of lumping them all into kind of a, you know, a town. And, you know, through his, you know, use of explaining how these old gentlemen have all have different styles of investing. They're all value investors by kind of a generality, but they all have different ways of kind of coming at it. But they've all been able to beat the market by finding differences in the value of the companies. Notice I'm not saying the price. He's finding the difference in the values and the prices are related to that. And because they can find the differences in the value, they can find great deals on companies that allow them to make millions and billions of dollars. And, you know, I think to me, when you look at that, the, you know, it's not just luck. And I think that's what some of the guys in the academic world would look at a gentleman like Warren Buffett and say, it's all luck. He's just, he's just lucky. He's just one person. Or there's just two people. There's way more than two people. And, you know, I'm not a learned investor. I'm self-taught. I know Andrew is as well. And we both are, you know, our performance in our, you know, portfolios have both beaten the market by, you know, f fair amounts. And, you know, that shouldn't be possible with our, you know, style of investing. And I think that's one of the things that I guess kind of, to me, makes it a little bit more, I'm very skeptical about what they talk about. That's kind of my thought on that. Yeah, the coin flip thing is something that's really one of the main points of a random walk down uh, Wall Street that Mal Malkiel wrote. And, you know, like you said, I don't want to, I, I, I really respect Malkiel and Bogle's work, and we do have a lot in common. For example, if somebody does not have the inclination or the desire 
to commit the time into learning what the strategies are, why the numbers work as they work, then I definitely agree that somebody should be a passive investor. They should be buying index funds and they will do much, much, they'll have a much higher performance than if they were to try and beat the market with limited information and no sort of base foundation understanding what's going to give you that advantage. And so when you talk about this advantage and the whole randomness of coin flips, I think it's a really interesting thing to think about because like you mentioned, Buffett said, okay, we have these coin flippers, but they're all, is it a coincidence that a lot of them, a big majority of them come from the school of the, the Columbia School of Business, all were mentored by Benjamin Graham, all have aspects of Benjamin Graham's philosophies into their own investing philosophy. Is that really a coincidence? When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerd Wallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform, our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. 
With our convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online, no uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free, no insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. Hymns.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. No. To take that point, right. I mean, you can have your opinion on that, but I'll take that, that point a step further. And another kind of idea is that, okay, well, if you could beat the market, surely more fund managers would be able to beat the market, right? So we have all these reports that, and it's studies, and you can't refute these studies. These are just facts. And obviously, it depends on which time period you look at. When you look at performance, that's always something to keep in mind. The longer you can look of a time period, you mentioned like three decades of outperformance. I think that's a much better thing to look at than even like a 10-year performance. But the studies show that a majority of the fund managers don't beat the market. Even higher majority aren't able to beat the market and give the investor who's investing in that fund a higher return than the market when you take out management fees and all the other fees that are associated with active mutual funds. So I know the numbers, again, it depends on what study you look at, depends on which time period you're looking at. Sometimes I'll even look at a single year and, and show how many people did not outperform the market. But, you know, somewhere between, you could say, as high as 75%, even like a 90% thing when you're including fees. So, okay, there's really like a 10 to 25% chance that you can beat the market. So why even feel confident that you could do it? I'll present the fact that if you look at a like a very popular investing resource like CNBC, for example. That's probably the most widely accessed, known about resource for investing stock market. And so if you look at their monthly views, uh, TV viewership, and online, it's even greater. But just from the TV's perspective, there's about, I can't remember if it was 12 million or 20 million TV viewers every single month. So you imagine that's that's a big part. You know, not everybody who watches is going to be an investor, but you have to imagine that a big part of those people are going to use some sort of aspect of CNBC as an influence into their investing. So if you ever turn on CNBC, I love to watch it. My favorite show on there is Shark Tank. I think Shark Tank teaches you a lot more about investing than any other show they have. Mm-hmm. And the sharks on there, Mark Cuban, 
Mr. Wonderful, they're all doing valuations within five to 10 seconds. And you'll see that like they'll buy a business with a price to sales of 1.5. I, I was watching an episode just the other day where I think the person trying to get investment funds for their company was trying to value their company at like $6 million. So it, it would have been like a, a four or five price to sales based on what their current sales were. So interestingly enough, I believe it was Cuban and somebody else went in on a deal together where they valued the different, the, they valued the business differently based on how much equity stake they would get. And it ended up being like 1.5, which, you know, is that a coincidence that that's a similar type of ratios that we like to use as value investors? Guys like James O'Shaughnessy have proven through studies that those kind of low price to sales ratios have outperformed. Anyway, I am getting on a tangent like I always do. <laughs> I'm going to circle back. Don't worry. So if you have the CNBC and you have 20 million people watching it a month, compare that to the intelligent investor, which, by the way, if you want to call yourself a value investor and you haven't read the intelligent investor, you don't count. You are not a value investor. So when Warren Buffett had his speech about the super investors and the, the Graham and Dodd school, all of those investors who outperformed, like we said, they were influenced by Graham. They had no doubt read a book like The Intelligent Investor, Security Analysis, those two really core principles of value investing. If you look at sales for The Intelligent Investor, and you know it's, it's financially incentivized as much as I love to talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. It's financially incentivized for the publishers to release how much how many copies the book sold so if it's if it sells like two million right now they're saying that it's it's sold about a million over a million copies ever since it's been published so i mean if if that number reaches over two you you, you would think that they would update those numbers mm -hmm. no anyway if you compare what's it been like 50 years i guess depending on which edition you want to look at in all of those years only a million people have read that book Compare that to CNBC where, sure, a lot of the monthly viewers are, you know, probably they're counted from month to month, but over a 50-year period, I'm sure there's a lot of churn there too, and I'm sure you have a lot more than 20 million people who use CNBC as part of their investing resources. So just from that alone, you're looking at like a less than 1%, maybe less than 0.5% if you're lucky, percentage of investors who are implementing this value strategy. So to look at the numbers and look at what Malkiel's talking about in the whole, well, you know, fund managers, already such a low percentage of them outperform the market. How can you as an individual think that you can do it? Well, if, my, if I know that my strategy is only used by less than a half a percent of the investors out there right now, and I know that there's a 25% chance that I'll beat the market. I think that the coin flip favors me if I know that there's research behind why it works, if it makes logical sense, if I'm seeing those results myself, then all of a sudden being one of the 25% who beat the market doesn't seem so strange when 99, probably more than 99% of people aren't even considering value investing in their strategy. What's the best way to get started in the market? 
Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. 40 pages, infinite ROI. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. That's a that's a good way of looking at it. You know, the I think part of why they may not be looking at the value investing strategy is it's it's hard. I mean, it's not hard, but it takes effort. You know, you have to you know do research. You have to read about companies, and you know you have to do some math. And so there is some effort that's involved in you know value investing. And I think that you know maybe turns some people off against it. And I think you know the other thing too is it's it has a long term horizon. You know, generally value investors are people that are looking long ways down the road, where I think more investors are looking for the get rich quick thing. You know, ergo the everybody and their brother buying into Snapchat just recently right. with, with their IPO release. I was reading something uh, earlier about uh, the Robinhood app that allows you to you know invest uh, through your phone. Most of the people that are Investors that use that app are millennials, and they said that 80% of their users bought Snapchat within the first couple of days of its release of the IPO on that wow. through that app. So I mean, you know, that was a huge, huge. Uh, you know, they didn't they didn't know what the exact numbers were. The company hasn't released that part of it yet, but I think that indicates you know that you know people were excited about you know the IPO and it being released and. The, like you were saying last week when we were talking to Ben, they, there's no numbers really to go off of. I mean, like you said, it's been losing money, and it's you know it's not profitable yet. And so you know you can't really judge the value of the company based on what an analyst says when it's being released because they have an agenda too. So that's a whole other conversation from today. But I think with you know the efficient market hypothesis, you know one of the things about the whole pricing thing, and that kind of comes back to you know the pricing part of it. You know it it says that there's you know there's no discrepancy between the you know the price of of Apple for today than versus yesterday, and if you buy it you know today, it's you know theoretically it should be the same price tomorrow, or the difference in the price is you know going to be because of the everything that's known about it. But, you know, there's so many things that happen in the market that, you know, that you just can't explain simply by saying that it's the price is already factored into it. You know, how can you explain, you know, the crash in, I think it was 1989, when the market lost 20% in one day? You know, you can't, what does that have to do with efficient? You know, that's people freaking out. And I think, you know, another thing about the efficient market hypothesis that I hadn't mentioned yet was it's based on everybody acting rationally. So everybody is going to behave, you know, rationally. They're not going to have fear. They're not going to have greed. And as we all know, we're human. We have all those emotions, you know, sometimes in plenty. And when things happen, we freak out and we overreact or we, you know, get super excited and exuberant or we get super depressed and we go, oh, my God, I'm going to lose all my money. i got to sell everything now. And, you know, so... You know, when things like that happen, you know, that's obviously based on emotion and the efficient market hypothesis doesn't factor that in. It's saying that everything based on the price of Apple is based on rationality. And when people are freaking out because an, an earnings report comes out and 
it's great, and then all of a sudden people are all super excited about it and start buying and buying and buying more, which drives the price up. But then on the flip side, you have people that are out there shorting Apple because they think it's going to, you know, die a horrible death because the earnings report is going to be really bad, and you know that's based, you know, they're basing that on their emotion. They think that, you know, they think that it's people are going to freak out about it and that they're going to lo- it's going to lose its value or its price. And so I think that's another aspect of the efficient market hypothesis, which, you know, I, I think that to me that's another aspect of it that just kind of makes me skeptical about the validity of, you know, the, the hypothesis. You know, all these things that I'm presenting, these are all my opinions and, you know, I am by no means, you know, the smartest person in the room, but I think I'm smart enough to see the patterns and, you know, the performance and just the logic of what goes on with people that are investing and doing their research and figuring out where they can find a deal on something. You know, intrinsic value is not just in the stock market. It's, you know, when we go buy a car, we're always looking for the best deal on a car. Same thing with a house. We want to find a great house for a good deal. And that's intrinsic value. You're looking for the, you know, you see that the house is worth 150000 but if you can buy it at 130 you know, that's a steal and you're super excited. Well, kind of the same thing works in the stock market. You know, you see that Apple or Amazon or whoever is worth a certain price and you think it's worth 110 and it's selling for, you know, 105 well, then maybe you might buy, buy some. So, you know, it just kind of depends. So, I think that some of those things to me just kind of lead me down the path that this is not, you know, it's not legitimate, I guess, is to be blunt. Well, I mean, that kind of leads to another good point about why saying that prices that are out there right now reflect what the, the company is really worth is, you know, we talked about how there's obviously differences in philosophy. What you see on CNBC is a lot different than what Benjamin Graham teaches in the same token, from wh- whoever is going to watch something on CNBC, they have segments for people who look at charts. They have segments for people who are focused on earnings. So you can't find, I mean, even within the individuals, it's very rare to find two individuals that are, that are using the same strategy and doing the same thing. So when you take that on a broader scale and you look at the entire market, everybody's bringing their own unique take into it. You know, it's this whole idea. Again, like you said, we're all human beings. And sure, there's a little bit of this high-frequency trading. There's some algo that have, that, that people trade on in these sophisticated, you know, uh, Golden, Goldman Sachs firms that have these algorithms that do all the trading for them. But that's not even close to what the majority of the market is comprised of as of today. So you have human beings, and before you want to argue that we're all rational and we've all evolved past this caveman status, I just want to challenge that because the just think about the last time you felt your blood pressure rise and or you felt the tingles in your in your skin or you just felt really uncomfortable, maybe your face blushed, and it could have been something so silly as like thinking of what some random stranger is thinking about you or you know you do something embarrassing in public or you're just scared to approach somebody and strike up a conversation, or even this whole idea of the fear of public speaking, it's not a rational thing. It's, we go into fight, fight and flight response, and it's, I think I wrote about this in an email before to my list. Mm-hmm. It's something that, it's just a part of us. It's, it's ingrained in our DNA. And so 
as long as you're having these kind of shared experiences that we all have, then I'm going to tell you that number one, you're not completely rational. And number two, if, if you're not like that, if, if Dave over here is not like that, if people who I run into on a daily basis, they're not completely rational, then you can safely assume that the rest of the market is that way. So we have all these people, they are all emotional and now we're talking about how they're all bringing their own unique filter into the market. They're all looking at the same amount of data and they're all making different conclusions. So, you know, if you have a, a stock that, let's say, it grew earnings by 10%, every, because we're all looking through our different tinted glasses, we're all going to perceive that as affecting what the stock's really worth in a different way. And so... This idea that what price really is, is based on what the stock's really worth today, I think that's fundamentally flawed. It's completely just no, really just too broad of a generalization to think that because it will really depend on a big group of people all valuing stocks the same way. You have analysts, you have people who are in the industry, they, they spend their nine to five plus whatever analyzing what, you know, what, what's the demand of next quarter? How are Christmas sales going to affect Apple's third line of products, right? And, and at the same token, you have people who are really far removed from that. People like myself, value investors who look from a more broader sense of, okay, here's a company with this amount of earnings, this amount of debt. And so this 10% earnings growth really means this. And somebody else is going to say, well, this means this. So because we're not all on a level playing ground, we can't say confidently that we're all going to perceive information as being different. Our dollar votes, and you see that reflected in the stock price, but it could be based on factors that don't even have to do with the value of the stock, of how we perceive it. I mean, how many people out there have pulled money out because they have an emergency, they have some personal financial hardship, maybe somebody like an insider in the company is laid off and they need to liquidate all their stock options. So many different factors and so many different individuals all going through this thing we call life all at the same time, all with different situations. And then you compound that with the fact that we're all having our different principles, our own different feelings and biases and strategies on the stock market. And I don't think it's fair to say that just because information is so freely accessible that how information is released is going to affect a stock price in the same way. Because you could have a stock like Apple who grows earnings by 10%. And at the same token, you can have a, a much smaller company that's not covered by nearly enough sell side and buy side analysts just because the money's not there, they could also grow 10% and there could be more value in one or the other and you, you'll see a, a much different effect on the stock price depending on that as, as far as in addition to just a myriad of other things. So in, <laughs> to make a, a very, very long point kind of a little bit shorter, it's, I don't think that saying that prices reflect the stock's value at all times or even a majority of the time is a good conclusion at all. I think it's wrong. No, I agree with you on that because you think about, you know, 
what one price, I mean, price is based, is based on what somebody's willing to pay for it. You know, you and I can look at, you know, Walmart and Amazon who are somewhat competing against each other, especially in the online realm. And, you know, you could look at Amazon and go, hey, awesome company, but there's no way I'll ever buy it because that's just way too expensive. Where Walmart is more in, you know, my price point and I'd be willing to buy it, but then I got to look into why I'd be willing to buy it. And, you know, we can both look at a car, the exact same car, and we, you know, I may really want it, and so I'm willing to pay whatever it's priced at. And you may be like, yeah, I like it, but I'll, I'll wait for something else because it's too, it's too expensive for me. So it kind of, I mean, even that, comes into, you know, the whole emotional part of it of, you know, I really want this, this is my desire, so I'm going to buy it for whatever it's worth without really doing a whole lot of research into the car, you know, what kind of engine does it have, what kind of miles to the gallon, how much is insurance going to cost me, you know, all these little things into it, you know, if the car breaks, how expensive is it, you know, if it's a BMW, you're going to pay through the nose to get an oil change, it's going to cost you $200 to get an oil change, as opposed to if you have a Chevy, you can take it to Jiffy Lube and it's 20 bucks. so, you know, there's just a lot of different things that go into that, and, you know, so those can all be factored into price as well. You know, the whole thing about price, you know, is such a an illusion. It's not really, you know, a matter of, you know, everything is factored into it and that's what it's worth and that's the fair value of it at this particular time. It's not. There's so many things that go into it. Like you're saying, every single person, you know, even Andrew and I, you know, who are value investors and we think a lot alike about a lot of the same things, we still come at a particular company with a different viewpoint. And we may not always have the same viewpoint, even though we both come from the same school. So even our, you know, interpretation of what we're looking at is going to be slightly different. And so when you take into the millions of other people that are investing into the stock market, like Andrew said, very, you know, adroitly is that every single person that's looking at, you know, Amazon or Walmart, they're going to have a slightly different take on it and they're going to view the current price of Amazon differently. And some people are going to say, absolutely, that's what I think it's worth. And a lot of other people are going to say, no, I don't think it's worth that. And there's all different ways you can go about looking at that and figuring out that and making your decision based on that. But again, that all comes back to kind of debunking the efficient market hypothesis because, you know, all those people are taking their unique view and looking at the price of Amazon and Walmart and interpreting it a different way. They're not just going, okay, I'm rational. I'm thinking, yeah, I really want this. This is a great company. You know, I buy everything with Amazon, so they got to be awesome. I got to be invested in the company, even though it may be losing money. You know, I'm still going to buy it because I think it's a great company. Whereas you have somebody else that's going, yeah, it's a great company, but it's too expensive. They're losing money. Their earnings are down. You know, they're not growing enough, you know, whatever it may be. And so they have all these different, you know, takes on it. And I think those to me are just more layers on why I think, you know, the efficient market, market hypothesis is just not a valid way to look at it. You know, you said earlier about, you know, we're coming at it as people that we want to invest on our own and we want to do the work and we want to look at this as something that we enjoy doing and we think there's value in it. You know, if somebody just wants to invest because they think they should invest because it's what somebody told them to do, then yeah, index funds, ETFs, that is absolutely the way to go because it's easy. You can buy into them and there's not a lot of effort that needs to be made into it. You just dollar cost average into them for 
the rest of your life and you'll do fine. You know, if that's, you know, what's important to you, that's really kind of what it comes down to is that if that's important to you and that's the way you want to do it, by all means, go for it. But if you're like, are ill can you want to do this on your own and you want to do this for yourself and you find this fascinating and interesting then absolutely you can beat the market it's been proven you know you can see it every day andrew has this great tool the value trap indicator that you know shows you how you can find stocks that you can buy with you know frankly not a ton of work and it's an amazing tool and it can show you how to beat the market andrew's using that very same tool himself to beat the market and uh, you know it's something he created on his own and it's a great way to you know utilize tools to help you beat the market if that's something you want to do and you know I think that, you know, I guess my point for all this is that it can be done if you want to do it. And there's a million different ways to do it. Value investing is the way we think is the best way to do it. And statistics have shown it's been the best way to do it over the last 30 or 40 years. To me, that's a pretty good indication. So I guess that's, I guess, another, for me, another layer of, of you know, I guess statistics analyzation that, again, debunks the market uh, hypothesis. Okay, I've got one more bullet left in the chamber. Okay. <laughs> okay, so there's another point that Malkiel makes in the book, and on the surface it looks like a really good one. So he shows a chart of a typical stock price. So I've done some research on this, probably a lot more than the average person would. But, you know, basically the chances of a stock going up or down are about 50%. And so he debunks the whole idea of, technical traders and momentum traders saying that they're trying to take advantage of momentum and that studies have shown that that doesn't work because there there's no correlation between what the stock did yesterday and what the stock will do today. And from my research from the time periods I looked at, I saw it was around maybe a, there was a slight tilt upwards towards uh, having a stock is just slightly more likely to, to, to be up than down for the day. I looked at the entire market, um, the S&P, um, and then there. <laughs> no, because I should look at one stock, right? Because that would be no. that would be <laughs> fantastic data. <laughs> no. <laughs> I so so yeah. So there's slight a slight bigger chance that it's going to go up than down, and then if it goes down, it's more likely to go down faster. So we see that with crashes. You know, you see big drawdowns happen in a short period of time. And then in general, you see the market tick up. So Malkiel's takes a chart of, um, of coin flips again and shows that if you chart out coin flips, it just kind of randomly goes up and down, and it really mirrors what a stock chart looks like. So it's a good point, and it's a good exercise, and it's a good visual. But again, I have to look at another fact that I think is a little bit overlooked. So if you look at the market has grown over 10%. It's about 10% a year for almost a century, maybe even longer. No coin flip is going to replicate that over that long of a time period. I don't care how many simulations you do with coins. There's, there's just no way that that is random. And the reason is because our, bit, our economy expands, contracts, but in general, the good businesses rise to the top, population growth, all of these different factors make a lot of businesses grow over time. And so you can even talk about inflation and all that. I don't want to get into that, but 
because we know these that there's businesses behind these stocks and that the market as a whole is slowly increasing 10% a year as you average it out over a long time period, you can't use the coin flip uh, metaphor to say that, well, all stock prices are random. It's, it, it, it's, it's a nice idea and it's a good way to scare people into indexing, but it's not really what reality is. And so as value investors, we're trying to not only take advantage of that, but also look at also that there are businesses behind these stocks. And if we can get our portfolio with some of the high performing ones, then we could even not only get that 10%, but get it even higher. So we looked at coin flips from two sides of the coin, if you may. And I think we found that while it's a great, exercise and it's, it's a great explanation for a big majority of the market you cannot ignore the outliers that are concentrated in omaha that are all mentored by this one guy do not discount those outliers and think that as an average investor you cannot beat the market you cannot beat the fund managers we talked about the financial incentives of the fund managers in episode six and how that skews their returns so don't be discouraged. Find the right principle. Find the right paradigm. Shift your mindset. And then really, if you can apply yourself, be intelligent enough to comprehend what's going on, then I think you have a good chance. All right, folks. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. We thank you very much for listening. If you have a moment, would you please like us on iTunes? Give us a review. Let us know what you think of the episode so far. And we will see you guys next week. Thank you. Looking for more? The Investing for Beginners ebook, titled Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market, shows you with real life examples how to simply break down the numbers. The ebook is free at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day.